The year is 1975. Picture, if you will, Alan Middleton, a young man fondled by the hands of fate. While joyriding on a remote mountain road in his uncle's 74 Camaro, a fateful collision with a truck careened him off the road, resulting in a fiery explosion that revealed a shocking truth. Beneath the tattered flesh caused by Alan's injuries lurk the exoskeleton of a Latverian doombot. Realizing that his life up to this point had been a lie, the teenage construct traveled to Latveria where he confronted his insidious maker. Taking pity on him, Doom revealed to Alan that he had been the first of a series of prototype life model infiltrator Doombots, which had developed a fatal flaw. Their high-level machine intelligence coupled with their advanced empathic circuits rendered them all too human, incapable of the ruthlessness and blind obedience Doom required. In a rare gesture of mercy, Doom inserted the baby bot into the American adoption system and promptly forgot about him. Twice rejected and now deported from Latveria by a creator who despised being reminded of failure, Alan set out to prove himself worthy of his father. Returning to the States and following in the footsteps of Doom, Alan was seduced by academic life and proceeded to collect PhDs like a sugar addict collects lollipops on Halloween. After taking the world of science by storm with his theory of relative geekery, a scientific marvel that made Einstein's stuff look like cheap pizza recipes, Alan, with the aid of his enhanced onboard voice modulator, perfected a science even Doom coveted. Radiotronic audio wave mind modulation the ultimate form of mind control, a science he termed doomcasting. The Latverian monarch at last saw potential in his now wizened construct and presented Alan with a test. Procure a 25-cent pristine copy of Fantastic Four, Volume 1, Number 5, from a quarter bin at a comic convention. Jumping at the chance to perform this impossible feat, Alan headed to the nearest con, dragging two captive mutants along, Longshot and Domino, whom he had abducted from the future and placed under his thrall with his mind modulator. A story for another day. In the presence of these two lucky but unlucky do-gooders, Alan quickly found a near-mint copy of said issue in the first quarter bin he perused. He reunited with his father and has been cruising the radio waves ever since, soothing humanity's resistance to tyranny with his calm, reassuring voice, gently spreading the doctrine of doom. And that, weird listeners, is the origin of Professor Allen, otherwise known as the podcasting polymath, the Latverian lector, the academic ace, yet one name rings louder than the rest. Doom speak. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Professor Allen, your very own Bronze Age alter ego. This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which sometimes listeners will have a hand in selecting. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? 
Stay tuned and find out. For this 140th episode of The Quarterbin, based on a listener Twitter poll, we're looking at Booster Gold number 6 from DC Comics, cover dated July 1986. But first, a little feedback. We heard from new listener Billy D, the newly elevated co-host of Into the Weird, joining Herman Lowe. And of course, we have to thank Herman for providing that segment that opened the show, My Bronze Age Secret Origin. Needless to say, you should be listening to that show. Billy scrolled through the back catalog for an episode to start off with and landed on Quarterbin 116 about Captain Victory. Just listened in on this episode. Good look at Latter-day Kirby. I have a couple of issues from this series and haven't looked at them in quite some time. I need to dig them out because after listening to the show, I realized I don't remember a thing about them. (laughs) Keep up the good work. Thank you, Billy. Later, Kirby can certainly be hit and miss, let's be honest. But even at that point in his career, when he nailed it, he really nailed it. Billy later told me about his cheap comic buying habits. I'm right there with you, Professor. I probably paid no more than $1 for 90% of my back issues. When I go to a show, it's right to the bargain bins. For a while, once every few weeks, I'd drive over to a shop in New Jersey that was two hours away. Why? The entire wall, maybe 50 feet long, was filled with long boxes of books at 50 cents each. And on free comic book day and another certain holidays, he'd have sales on top of that. Once, I left with well over 120 back issues and multiple Swamp Thing trades for a total of 60 bucks. Plus, he had a rewards program where you'd accumulate money, and I used that to get bags and boards for free. Very nice, Billy. Glad to hear from you. Glad to have a fellow cheapskate bargain hunter listening. On the issue of Time Warp that we covered in 137, our good friend and recent birthday girl, Laurel, a.k.a. Mountainflower1, had this stunning admission. By reviewing The Survivors, you have given away my super-secret spy disguise as an ugly, multi-limbed alien with eye stalks. My career infiltrating NASA as a field agent for the CIA is ruined! Ruined! So, sorry, Laurel, and I understand that now that you've told me this, next time we meet, you'll have to kill me. It's the risk of being a podcaster. We all know that when we go into this dangerous, risky field. On episode 138, Star Wars Tales from Mos Eisley, we heard from Karen, the sweet lady behind the sweet between the pages blog where pop culture and food meet. She said that that issue sounded similar to IDW's Tales from Vader's Castle, and then made a comment about one of the specific stories to which she gave the warning, terrible pun ahead. 
of course a horror story set in a lighthouse is just going to be light horror. Karen, Karen, Karen. Let me just say for all of us, thanks for the pun warning. (laughs) We also heard from Lizanne Oswald on that episode actually comparing both the Star Wars and Time Warp issues. Lizanne has a YouTube channel, by the way. Hi, Prof. Allen. Impressive podcast. Most impressive. This had some cool stories in it and a bit of horror. But when Time Warp came out, only the first movie existed and maybe splinters of the mind's eye. So my point still stands. Time Warp wouldn't have worked for fans of A New Hope. Still, I've read a few of these tales of books and there's always a lot of fun. In fact, Maul, with robotic legs, started in an issue of a similar anthology. And having Brett Blevins on art, that's pretty cool. I liked his work in New Mutants and Sleepwalker, so that sounded like a cool story. And it was great to hear Trennis on the podcast. Yes, it's always good to talk to Trennis. Dark Horse had a great line of comics when they had the license. Not saying Marvels aren't good, but these were good as well. Can't wait for the next podcast. Thank you, Lizanne, who we also heard about on last episode, The Marvel Magazine. And Lizanne has a YouTube channel. Greetings. Professor Allen, cool podcast. I've read the FF stories from the last Quarterbin podcast, but I read them from the Burn Visionary FF collection. And on the cover, it did have Dr. Doom's favorite superhero, Mr. Fantastic, so I know you'd love it. Come on, Professor. We all know Victor has all the Mr. Fantastic action figures and plays him in the Marvel games. Sorry, I had to make the joke. Okay. Okay, I'll allow it, Lizanne. I'll allow it. By the way, the comic was great and part of a great two-parter. It was cool seeing Ben as the character to take the fight directly to Ego. That was pretty cool. Can't wait to hear the next podcast. Those recent episodes received social media love from Ed Moore of Teal Productions, Tutu Freaks, Serge Bamba, Gene Hendricks from The Hammer Strikes, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Chris Ouellette, Ed Gosney, Luke Giaconetti from Earth Destruction Directive, Trevor Owen Williams, Old School Ross, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Al Sinano, David Pascarella, Comics with Kenobi, Derek William Crabb of the Fan Holes Podcast, Trentus Magnus himself, Sir Iowa's Joe, Chris from Bat Books for Beginners, The Kind and Generous Sutherlands, and Laurel, a.k.a. Mountain Flower One, from the Huntress Podcast. Thanks to everyone for that support. It is very much appreciated. And now, let's turn our attention to the comic we have to cover this episode. Booster Gold, number six, had a cover price of 75 cents, meaning I acquired this book uh, reasonable enough, although not earth-shaking, 66.6% discount. The cover of Booster Gold number six by Mike DiCarlo and Dan Jurgens shows a file 
of figures and photos, all related to Booster, as well as one of his gloves and a Legion flight ring. And across the top, at last, the origin of Booster Gold. The story, To Cross the Rubicon, was written and penciled by Dan Jurgens and inked by Mike DiCarlo. And for help in getting started with this synopsis, the DC Wiki and other sources may have been consulted. I say may because, well, I kind of forgot to write that information down. Hashtag podcast fail. We start with a teenage boy riding his bicycle through Metropolis's Centennial Park. The kid, Jason Redfern, who just goes by Fern, discovers a miniature spaceship there, which he takes to be a toy, until he sees the miniature alien. Miniature as in fitting inside of Fern's pocket. Now, the little alien's language cannot be understood by Fern, so he just calls him Z. When Z pushes him out of the way of the exploding spaceship, Fern is convinced of the little guy's good intentions that he doesn't mean to harm, but help, and takes the alien home with him. At home, Z projects an image of Superman's S-shield, which Fern thinks is totally awesome. You're looking for Superman, I bet. He doesn't know how to find Superman, of course, but catching a TV ad featuring Booster Gold, Fern devises a plan on how to get a hold of Superman. He travels to the midst of the Metropolis Business District, where he is able to get in and have a meeting with Booster. And tell the man his story, Booster then publicly calls Superman out through the media, requesting a meeting the next day. Clark hears about all this at the Daily Planet and sneaks away to change clothes. Booster arrives at the rendezvous point, Baker Dam, having stopped off at Star Labs to grab a life support suit for Fern, although Skeets is skeptical about whether Superman will show the Man of Steel does indeed arrive in a pretty great splash page, landing above Booster in more ways than one, he is looking down on our titular character. Superman is not a fan of Booster Gold in his attention-seeking ways. He quickly deduces that Booster and Skeets are from the future and that his powers are artificial. Disappointed in the reactions of his hero, Booster just slumps away. But Skeet speaks to Superman and reveals to him and us the secret origin of Booster Gold. Michael John Carter was a superstar athlete, the biggest name in college football in 2462. He was on the verge of beginning to play professionally, but was caught up in a Pete Rose situation, betting on his own games, and expelled from college with no future. As an athlete, he took a security job at the Space Museum, as well as taking classes to study 20th century superheroes. His plan was formed when he discovered Rip Hunter's time machine in the museum, disabling the museum's security robot, Skeets, Carter steals stuff from a bunch of the exhibits to create a power suit, and then he travels back to the 20th century 
bringing Skeets with him. Superman is shocked to hear this, especially the parts about Booster's thievery, and then using the stolen equipment to make himself rich. Needless to say, this does not impress the Man of Steel. And as the two argue about the situation, the little alien Z starts to speak, and Superman listens closely. I can understand bits and pieces. Apparently, there is a warship chasing him. Out of nowhere, an energy burst appears with a zap, And this renders Superman, Booster, and Fern unconscious. Skeets is shocked. How can this be? What shall I do? Well, our heroes are still out cold. Another miniature alien appears. His ship nabs Booster, Superman, Fern, Z, and Skeets, and then shoots off into the sky. The end. I don't know. Modern day comics just don't seem to have the magic the older ones did. I wish I could go back to those days. What? What the? Wait, you're me! But, but I'm me! How is this possible? I'm you! From the future. What happens to my voice? Oh, well, uh, actually, I kind of was eating peanuts before I came back, and uh, one of them went down the wrong tube. I'm still trying to get it out, actually. <coughs> Nothing. Well, still, the future must be terrible. I mean, your hair's half burnt off. Oh, well, actually, I tripped and fell over the stove. What about the scar on your face? It's a paper cut. And the eye patch? I was looking through a telescope and accidentally pointed at the sun. Look, I have a reason for being here. I built a time machine so you can go back to the past and check out the comics of yesteryear. I figure you'll either enjoy the good old days or you'll gain an appreciation for the current comics. Maybe both. Can I bring some friends with me? Sure, but only one at a time. Well, there you have it. Join me, Mike Staley, and an assortment of co-hosts as we look over the world of DC Comics from half a century ago in my new monthly podcast, DC 50 Years Ago. Who are you talking to? Uh, Don't worry about it. Just check out DC 50 Years Ago on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called and at dc50yearsago.podomatic.com. Seriously, who are you talking to? And we're back with different audio quality, I'm sure, as I am recording this second half of the episode in North Carolina at my dad's house. Hope it sounds at least acceptable. And on that promo I just played, let me say that when that new podcast of Mike Staley's comes out, give it a couple of episodes to decide if you're going to be in for the long haul. As someone who possesses 
some inside information. Don't judge it too harshly based just on the first episode, okay? Thanks. Now, onto this issue. As I mentioned before, the mentioned that, that Twitter poll, I asked listeners and followers to help me decide which DC character I should cover in this episode. And with more than 60 votes, the results broke down as follows. Batman, 6%. Oh, that has got to hurt. Villains are going to get beat up good tonight. Nightwing and Shazam, 28% each. And yes, a few people did make fun of me for calling the DC character Shazam. Keith G. Baker specifically mentioned that there are just not enough podcasts about old wizards with long beards. I know, I know, I just didn't want to confuse people about the name of the Marvel character. That's why I went with Shazam. But far and away, the big winner, over 38% of the vote, was our man, Booster Gold. Thanks to all who voted, even those who wrote in Marianne Williamson. So that is how we got to covering this issue. More important, though, is what I thought of it. And first, we do have to address the potentially historic nature of this issue. One of the websites I visited for research, maybe ComicBookDB, maybe the DC Wikia, I probably should have written that down, but one website included this note about Booster Gold 6. This issue contains the first appearance of Superman post-crisis. It predates John Byrne's miniseries Man of Steel number one by three months. And as evidence, we have Superman's failure to recognize Booster's Legion flight ring. Your ring is particularly complex, obviously the product of a superior technology. Where are you from anyway? This is later confirmed by Superman's reference to this meeting in Action Comics 594. Of course, I had to follow up with someone about this bold statement about the historical importance of Booster Gold number six, so I turned to Superman's best friend on the internet, Dragon Con's Michael Bailey, who responded to the above statement with, that would definitely be a detailed, anal-retentive, picky point. That issue came out in May, and Booster was definitely post-crisis. So it's one of those, aha, that has to be the first appearance of the post-crisis Superman. I suppose that the Council of Twelve decided that in a vote before they went back to their hedonistic festival. I'm not sure that's exactly how it happened, but I don't think I'm that far off. Seriously, it's just a fan thing. Fun, sure, but it's not like DC planned that out or intended it to be that way. So, Mike, you're saying that I shouldn't have had this 25-cent book graded and slabbed because as Superman's first post-crisis appearance, it is actually valuable enough to pay off my mortgage? Oh, man. Seriously. Thank you for that information and response, Dragon Con's Michael Bailey. Now, one website I visited figured that this issue could fit neatly into the Man of Steel timeline between issues five and six, 
because in this issue, Superman is confident in his role, in his position. It seems like he's met a bunch of the original batch of heroes, putting the appearance of Booster several years into Superman's career. Booster is aware of him and is a fan of him, although you could argue that some of that could be from Booster's historical studies. But we do have Superman's outrage at Booster's self-centered money-making activities, all of which stem from theft, and that indicates that Superman has developed a sense of moral authority and that he has other heroes to compare Booster to. So I think that analysis makes sense if that sort of continuity detail appeals to you, lovely listener. You know, continuity that is no longer in continuity. Now, in terms of looking at this specific issue, I do want to start with the title to cross the Rubicon. And this is from Wikipedia, not a primary source. In 49 BC, perhaps on January 10th, Julius Caesar led a single legion south over the Rubicon from Cisalpine, Gaul, to Italy to make his way to Rome. In doing so, he deliberately broke the law on Imperium and made armed conflict inevitable. The phrase, crossing the Rubicon, has survived to refer to any individual or group committing itself irrevocably to a risky or revolutionary course of action, similar to the modern phrase, passing the point of no return. So I guess Booster's point of no return would be stealing the time machine and heading back to the 20th century. Although I guess you could argue that the die was cast for him when he began to gamble on his own football games. At, at, at that point, he crossed his Rubicon. I suppose either interpretation would work. Now, I do want to give a warning here because I'm about to go on a bit of a rant about a very minor part of the story. But before that, let me emphasize that I really liked this. It is excellent. The focus on the kid protagonist, the cute little alien, the Booster versus Superman showdown, and then another alien showing up with enough power to knock out everybody. The cliffhanger ending. This is a very solid comic book from beginning to end. The look on Superman's face, both when he shows up at the dam and then later when he learns about Booster's shady past, that is impressive. But all of that praise aside, I did have one itsy bitsy issue. So let's chat a bit about future sports, because I gotta admit that I don't think this was handled very well here at all. I know that bit of Booster's history isn't all that important in terms of the details, and I understand that Dan Jurgens had other parts of the story he wanted to get to. But as a sports fan and a sci-fi fan, this is not a good scene. We are 500 years in the future, and Jurgens and DiCarlo bring really nothing futuristic or new to the story on this point. You're making huge assumptions that colleges, amateur sport, pro sport, gambling, that those things won't change perceptibly in the next five centuries? 
viewed sports gambling of change in the last 15 years. The idea that a scandal, I would say even a gambling one, in college would not keep an athlete from being drafted into a professional league. That's not true at this point, like it may have been three decades ago. Other than something violent towards women, nothing else is going to keep a great college player out of the pros. Violence, weapons charges, a drug history. These don't end a burgeoning professional career, and I can't see that they would in the mid-25th century or so. And of course, the very idea that football would remain the king of sports in 500 years doesn't seem likely here looking at it in the summer of 2019. Between concussions and a range of other issues, youth participation in the sport is in decline. TV ratings are flat or down, depending on, on what you look at. But the trend lines are not favorable. Certainly not if you extrapolate for five centuries. Again, this is not a big deal, but it did really bump me, which I do admit is kind of silly, obviously. But I mean, why not just make up a new sport that Booster is part of, a new celebrity situation, a new competition, a new path to riches that John Carter loses? Let us make the comparison, make the reference other than saying that he is just literally a football star from 500 years in the future, playing basically the same game we play today under the same circumstances. That seems really unlikely. But okay, enough of that. Sorry for that diversion. But I need to warn you again, another digression is coming up right here, right now. And that is that Booster Gold may well be one of the last successful, wholly original, new characters launched by the Big Two in comics, which is crazy because it was 33 years ago. Now, before you start typing your responses into your Lexphone, let me parse that sentence. First, the ultimate cover that I have is that I said one of the last. Not the last, so yes, Deadpool. And I also said launched in a comic book, so sorry, Harley Quinn, you don't count. And I am pretty strict with my definition of wholly original, meaning that however much I love Jessica Cruz, and I do, the fact that she was introduced as a Green Lantern, I don't think it counts as original. Booster was original, not relying on any prior branding or associations for the reader to grab onto. Similarly, as much as I love Ms. Marvel Kamala Khan, and I do, she got the huge benefit of being called Ms. Marvel. That buys you a ton of goodwill. Similarly, Spider-Gwen and even Silk, another character I really love, although she seems to have been left behind in Spider-Gwen's wake of popularity. But sorry, but again, in my mind, in my strict definition, those are derivative characters to Spider-Man in some cases with shockingly similar origins. Now, I'm sure DC and Marvel have come up with a few new wholly original characters since Booster Gold. And if so, they are very few and far between. That statement I stand behind, especially when compared to the 33 years before Booster Gold. There's no way to list all of the new original characters created for the big two 
between 1953 and 1986. Without making this so long of an episode, if I just listed them, that Stella would tell me, dude, reel it in a bit. Yes, maybe the last 33 years have given us a handful of characters from the big two, and I say maybe. But compared to the 33 years before that, hundreds, maybe over a thousand, the differences in the two eras is stunning. And there are many reasons why this is the case, but the most important one is that if you create a character from Marvel or DC, they own it. Why was Marvel worth $4 billion to Disney? Because of all the characters that they own. It's taken a lot of time and effort to get character creator credits into TV and movie and games, etc. But the payments for character usage are still comparatively paltry. I'm not saying that, by the way, as a criticism of the comic companies or their business model of using freelances and work for higher contracts. But that is the situation at the big two and has been for as long as they've been around. And so creators are not bringing their new creations to DC and Marvel, but to their own independent or creator owned works. Again, this has not hurt Marvel very much, obviously, this lack of new character generation because they were worth $4 billion a few years ago. So there's always a risk-return trade-off for a character if they want to become entrepreneurial about their works and their characters. That risk-return trade-off is an unavoidable part of a free market economic style. As I tell my students, risk versus return is as fundamental to a modern capitalist business system as gravity is to physics. It's just there. It's a force of nature and it has to be considered. And if a character or title takes off, if a property hits it big, it can become a financial annuity for the creator, passive income, mailbox money. A career trajectory that I see often for young comics creators, especially on the writing side, but it's probably true of artists as well, is to start with a small press or indie publisher. And while you improve your craft and build a following, you eventually catch the notice of Marvel or DC. You know, maybe you sell 3,000 copies of your, of your indie work and you probably lose money at it. But then you go to work for the big two for a couple years as a freelancer, build your profile, build your audience, so that when you leave, you can go back to creator-owned books that you run through crowdfunding or image or another creator-friendly publisher. And then you can sell 25,000 copies and maybe make some actual money. And if TV or games or movies come calling, you own the property and can benefit therefrom. So creators aren't bringing their dream projects, their passion projects, the ideas they've outlined and doodled at for a decade to the big two. They save those, keep them to themselves, and when they're established enough in the industry, they take a shot, they take the risk, make the effort of bringing those to the world and seeing who will bite. And most fail. But that's the nature of risk-taking, in the same way that a risk-taking business person who starts their own venture 
has a greater chance of failing than someone on a more safe or secure career path, albeit with the greater chance of huge wealth as well. The comic creator who retains ownership of their property and eschews Marvel and DC has a greater chance of failing, of their comic not catching on, not paying for itself. But if they retain ownership, that is the chance, albeit a small one, of hitting the financial jackpot. Which is why, as I said earlier, Booster Gold may well be one of the last successful, wholly original new characters launched by the big two. For those of you who stuck with me for that particular rabbit trail, thank you for staying tuned, and I thank you for giving me a chance to here as the summer is winding down and the start of fall semester is not too far away, to let me practice getting my lecture on. Sadly, I very rarely, sometimes, but very rarely, get a chance to talk about comic books in the classroom. So this is as close as I get, and I thank you. The verdict on Booster Gold number six, despite the negative things I said about very picky parts of the issue and the wild, rambling tangents I went on in this episode. This is a really good comic book. An exciting origin story, a terrific guest star, solid professional writing and storytelling, and a dramatic cliffhanger. And the only part I didn't dig was the couple of pages about future sports. But I only noted that because I'm a sports fan. But that bit was not enough to knock this book down very much. All in all, a definite quarter bin deal. And that wraps up our coverage of Booster Gold number six, bringing Quarter Bin Podcast number 140 to a close. Next time, we're sticking with DC, but jumping ahead a decade or so. With Chase number one from DC Comics, as we said, cover dated February. 1998. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, the state of character creation among the big two, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.